0: The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, And were baptised by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Indeed, I indeed baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit." It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens departing and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is God's amazing, infallible and inerrant word. Let's pray once more. Lord God, we thank you for being able to start this morning, our journey through Mark's gospel. We pray that as we work through this, that we might have a spirit of humility, that we might not look at these words and say, I've read this before, I know this. May we look at this as your mighty, powerful, living word, that no matter whether we're reading it for the first time or the millionth time, that you use this word to grow us, to shape us, to refine us. May that be true for each one of us today. May we see you in incredible ways. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, obviously we are starting through Mark's Gospel this morning. Now, Mark's Gospel is one that I've wanted to preach on for quite some time. Uh, A few years ago when we had the outreach service at Kalanga, we spent some time working through Luke's Gospel. We got up to about uh, chapter 7 from memory. And we also, about a year ago, looked at uh, some more chunks of Luke as we worked through different parables. Now, when we look at Luke, Luke is a man who who was a doctor, a very analytical mind and has a, a more academic style of writing. As we dive into Mark, we dive into a book that wasn't written by a doctor. We dive into a book who we might describe as more of the common man. But this is a common man who is moved by the Holy Spirit to write this, to write this record of Jesus' life. Now, this book is written by a man who seemingly loves action. Now, if you've read a novel lately, you open it up, I sometimes read... Uh, political crime thrillers, and you open up and you get scenes like it was a dark, misty, starless night and Detective McGuffin sat in his car drinking, it's not going to be cliche, drinking stale coffee and eating old donuts, thinking, how did I get here? The novelists, they, they set the scene. They set a scene to draw you in. Now, we don't see dark, starless, misty nights here. We have action. We have one event following another, and we see this the whole way through this. And we don't see those things because the subject of Mark's writing is one who is completely compelling. This is a compelling account to not only know what Jesus did, but to believe that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant. In many ways, this is a high-octane account of Jesus' ministry. Now, some of short attention spans might like this. It goes, then they were in this place, and then Jesus came, and then the disciples went, and we get one thing after another. Now, even if you have a short attention span, bear in mind that we shouldn't prioritize one gospel account over another. They all work together to give us a wonderful picture of the full good news of Jesus Christ. But they're each written with a slightly different emphasis and we learn something new from each one. Even today, while we're focusing on Mark, I will be mentioning some of the other Gospel accounts because they help bolster our understanding of the Messiah. Now, there's different emphasis in the different Gospels. We have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John emphasizes Jesus' divinity. Matthew emphasizes Jesus' kingship. Luke emphasizes Jesus being a man. And Mark emphasizes Jesus being the suffering servant. Now, say emphasize. I believe wisely say emphasize because we could look at all of these accounts and see this across all of them, but there is still a certain emphasis behind each one, which is why having four gospel accounts is just such a wonderful blessing. Now, another feature of Mark is that Mark hasn't been written with a a Jewish audience first and foremost in his mind. Matthew has been written that way. Matthew's written with a Jewish audience first in mind, which is probably why we start Matthew off with genealogies. And there's a lot of references through Matthew to events that took place in the Old Testament, which Mark doesn't necessarily avoid them, but he doesn't have as much detail about Old Testament events. Mark's first audience, the people who would have read this first, were people in the Roman Empire who probably had no idea about what was in the Old Testament. And this is why he jumped straight into Christ's ministry. Now, before we jump there with Mark, I need to provide some further clarification around the word gospel. We see it come out here in verse 1. We saw it in the kids' talk, we heard the word gospel. Because I realise looking back over my own sermons, I probably haven't been as clear as I should have been about what the word gospel, strictly speaking, is. And uh, I've listened lately to uh, guys like Vody Borkum or John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul before he died speaking. About it. There seems to be general confusion within the church these days about what it is. R.C. Sproul says that he will often ask ministers, what is the gospel? And the response seems somewhat lacking, that even ministers of the gospel can't define what the gospel is. And it sometimes gets confused with what we see in Acts chapter 17. Paul there taught the Ephesian church the whole counsel of God. Maybe when we hear gospel, we think the whole Bible. The gospel is in the Bible but the gospel is a central feature of the Bible. If we look at what the apostles did, or all the guys who wrote these gospel accounts, there is a particular focus on Jesus Christ. This is a tradition carried on by the early church fathers. They hold to the understanding that we need the whole Bible to understand the good news of Jesus Christ, but that is the gospel in and of itself is not necessarily the whole Bible. Now, that might seem like just an academic point to make, but I think it's important for us to understand. Even the angels in Luke and those sorts of things bring good news. It's talking about Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel means good news. It's Straight from the Greek word euangelion, which Greeks don't have Vs, but if you think, change that U in there for a V, you have evangelize. Tell people the good news. Now, we can talk about that more, but we have Mark's Gospel to get into now. And if you would like to talk more, I'm very happy to talk more about that, but also recommend looking up R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Vodie Borkham, really, really helpful voices who also speak passionately about why this distinction matters so much with our handling of Scripture. Now, a lot of those things will naturally come to light as we work through Mark's Gospel, so I'll leave it there for now. But Mark starts off with the ministry of Christ and starts off with preparation for the Messiah. Messianic preparation is what particularly the first nine verses, first eight verses are all about. And while I said Mark's writing this for people who don't know the Old Testament, writing particularly for those uh, first century uh, citizens of the Roman Empire, and God has preserved it for all people, He starts off still by referring to the Old Testament, which he seems to have a good recognition that the Old Testament and New Testament are not separate. It's the one God working out his redemption plan from the Old Testament through to the end of the New Testament through to today. And he refers to the promise, a promise made of someone who is going to come. He refers to Isaiah chapter 40. He refers to Isaiah chapter 40, Verse 3, someone is coming. And if we look at the text there carefully in Isaiah, we see it's not just someone, it's God himself is coming. And God is coming, but before him is going to come a messenger to prepare the way. This is a promise that's been there for 700 years since Isaiah was around. It's a promise made that a messenger and God himself following that will come. One promise is, Two people. A promise we see in Isaiah 40 verse 3 as well as Malachi chapter chapter 3 as well. And if we're wondering about the efficiency of Mark's writing, it's quite incredible. He reminds us of this promise. He says, someone's coming. And then God's coming. We're wondering, who might that be? Mark goes straight from that in verse 3 to verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This is where we see the punchy, almost action-style way that Mark writes. Verse 1 sets the scene. Verses 2 and 3, these promises, these prophecies that need to be answered. Who is this person? Verse 4, John came. Simply by writing it the way that he has, he shows that John is the messenger who came. John came baptising. And to get more of the action, high-octane way that Mark's writing this, the, the way came, the, the word came, it's a fair translation, but it's also translated as appeared or born or created. as if this is the role that John had, which is exactly what God had in store for him. John appeared, John came. And suddenly Mark is answering this 700-year-old question of who is this messenger? Who is this messenger? The messenger is John. John is here. John who came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This was what John did. We see John faithful in this role that he has been given. We see John doing this to prepare hearts for the Messiah's arrival to this world. To prepare people to respond to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, coming. John is there. John is preaching and John is baptising. John is being used by God to fulfill this prophecy that hearts would be prepared, that the path would be made straight for the Messiah. Now, just a note when we read there about John baptizing, it's not the main point of this text here, but there's often a question mark as to the mode of baptism that John would have used. Would he have dunked people underwater? Would he have done what the Old Testament would have done of sprinkling or pouring, which is, As a Presbyterian church, our conviction, and if we look at who the person of John is, John's father was a priest in the temple. John would have been raised to be a priest. John would have been raised to continue on that tradition of cleansing by sprinkling or pouring on of water. I think we actually do see here a hint through even the person of John and how he would have conducted himself of how he was doing this. So it's not the main point here, but I do think it's an often forgotten point within Scripture. I thought I'd take a moment here just to indulge myself and share that one. But people came. People came to John. John was in the wilderness. He was, he was out back. John wasn't set up just around the corner where you could walk there between, on your lunch break at work. He was out in the middle of nowhere. But people went. People seemed to flock to him. They were going. They were being baptised. They were confessing sin. Now we read that and go, well, we know this happened. We've heard about John the Baptist. But consider this fact as well. Not only has the prophecy of Isaiah been there for 700 years, there has been 400 years since the last book of the Old Testament was written to when we are now in history with John the Baptist. In a sense, a 400-year silence, as it were. A 400 years of, of patience and waiting and wondering what's coming next. When we see this, We see God moving to truly prepare hearts. God is using John to truly prepare the way to make the path straight for the Lord because we see here a new spiritual vitality. Hearts are being prepared. Hearts are being prepared for the Messiah. John was preparing the way for one even greater than himself. The one who came after John, who John says is going to be greater than me, isn't because John is, as we read there in verses six, a bit of a seven, a bit of a wild man. The way he dressed made him lesser. That's not what's going on here. It's not because of his diet either. The, 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 actually, if you have read the Old Testament, you notice similarities in fashion sense between John the Baptist and Elijah. Which is why in other Gospels people go, Maybe this is Elijah. They're not just making it up, there is a similarity of fashion sense there. But John is here doing this. But John says, I'm baptizing with water. The one who comes after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, we could move on from that to John just saying, There's going to be one coming who's greater than me, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop and untie. But let's pause there. And notice the attitude of John. And as we do that, ask yourself the question, have you ever wanted to stand out? Have you ever wanted to shine brighter than the people around you? For kids, have you guys ever wanted to stand out from everyone in your grade at school by blowing them out of the water with the grades that you get? or by being the best musician in the ensemble. And no one else can sit in that first violin seat but me, and I don't know enough about other instruments to try saying other ones off the top of my head. Have you ever wanted to be the best that there is there? To stand out for yourself, to shine brightly yourself. What about bigger kids, the adults? Have you guys ever wanted to be the most important person in your workplace? The most influential person in your generation? Maybe if you have very lofty goals, the most influential person in your nation's history? The reason I ask those questions is it's been 400 years since God had spoken directly to his people. But here is John the Baptist, he is unique out of all the Israelites in the last 400 years, that he is the one that God is using to prepare the way for the Messiah. Not only is he the first prophet for 400 years, he is the one preparing the way for the Messiah. He is a unique person in Israel's history, especially at this point in time. If I was John, I would really, really struggle to stay humble. I'd struggle to stay humble because I'm doing something that No one in my generation, no one in my parents or grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents' generation to keep going back for 400 years has done before. John could very easily say, I'm doing what no one in almost half a thousand years has done. Aren't I wonderful? But no, there is one greater than I who is coming. This doesn't go to John's head as uniquely blessed as he is in the role that God is using him for, he knows that there is one greater. He knows that there is one who would come after the messenger. He was the voice preparing the way for the Lord. He was not the Lord. I think that example of humility is one that we need to take note of ourselves. I struggle with this and I strongly suspect many of us struggle with this. How much humility do we show before God, truly in our hearts? Because John says, I won't even be worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. The lowliest job for the lowliest servant of a household, I am not able to do that. I am not worthy enough. And he points us to the spiritual blessings that Christ will bring. You think water baptism is special you think that external sign of spiritual cleansing is great? Wait until a better baptism, one of the Holy Spirit comes. You are in for a treat then. Everything about the one to come is even better than anything, the best I could offer you. And to continue this note of humility, the one who is going to come is John's cousin. Jesus and John were cousins. Now, whether John knew this or not, we have some ambiguity about that. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We do know that when Mary and, uh, and Margaret met, uh, the, uh, John leapt for joy in the womb, when his and Jesus' mum caught up. And the fact that Jesus and John are cousins makes John's humility even more amazing to me. I, I'm both blessed and perhaps cursed to have a cousin who's the same age as me. Uh, Pete is a great guy, and God will forgive him for living in Ipswich. But we occasionally played soccer against each other growing up. Now, we lived in very different parts of the southeast Queensland, but we'd play against each other at club or regional level sometimes. And our coaches would often take us out of our normal positions to play against each other. Because our coaches knew that it didn't matter where in the park we were playing, if we were going against each other, we were going hard. And there were no prisoners and winning was all that mattered. And that's the attitude we have here. And Pete and I would find ourselves in these situations. Sometimes Pete would win. I'd like to say that most of the time I'd win, but I think honestly it was quite even. But we have that, that rivalry there with our cousins. Rivalry, competition to outdo one another. Things you always expect in cousins. But, but that's not John's attitude to Jesus. Humility is made even more amazing by this. As we see in another gospel, with the words that aren't recorded here, when John was about to baptise Christ, he saw Jesus coming and he recognised him as the Lamb of God. And he didn't go, oh, had to be my cousin. No, he goes, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, before we do get to verses 9 to 11, where we see John baptising Christ, there's things that have emerged in the text that we can't just see. There's things that happened way back in dusty Palestinian streets 2,000 years ago, or the outback, as it were, not really in the streets, were they? See, the message that John brings, while there is a great emphasis on baptism, what we see in the Old Testament, there's a message that continues to today and has continued Since the fall, the need to repent. The need that we each have to repent of our sins. We see here people confessing sin. Whether we have had God move in our hearts that we might receive him as Lord or whether we haven't had that happen yet. We cannot either come into that relationship with God or continue well in our relationship with God if we do not continue to confess our sin and repent of our sin. Now, when the Spirit moves us, we are saved forever. But what sort of relationship do we want to have with the God who made everything? One that just sort of kicks on with not much doing? That friend who lives a couple of states away that you text every so often and that reflects our prayer life with God, where we need a parking space and shops are busy, so God give me a car park and I'll talk to you in three months when I'm at the shops and it's busy again. Doesn't reflect a vitality with the Creator of all things, does it? We need to be aware of our hearts. We need to have a relationship with God and we should desire and want and long for more than anything else one where love and grace grows daily in our hearts. And I said before that there seems to be this incredible spiritual vitality at this point in time. People from Jerusalem and Judea going out into the wilderness to see John, to hear John, to repent, to be baptised, to be confessing sins. Before this, there seems to have been a a, a groove that Israel had fallen into spiritually. It's not necessarily unhealthy, but it's not necessarily a healthy one either. John's dad was the priest on duty when we first meet him in the Gospels. Again, not necessarily a bad thing. Doing something out of duty is not wrong. But it doesn't actually stream healthy, spiritual, godly things are happening here in Israel, does it? Compare that to people flooding the outback. But we can fall into those patterns too. It's Saturday night, oh, we've got to set the alarm so we can get to prayer meeting and church in the morning. It's Wednesday, oh, we've got to go to Bible study. I was hoping to watch State of Origin. Now, I struggle with that three times a year, obviously, But we can fall into those patterns where sometimes we do things out of duty, but we should take note of the massive change that's happening in Israel when sin is both confessed and repented of. We should notice that and also notice in a way where we do something about it, where we take on board the lesson that is present for us there. And then, then we get to John baptising Jesus. Now, as I said before, other gospel accounts have that interaction of John seeing Christ come, before, come forward towards him and declaring, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, we don't have that here in Mark, but that doesn't make Mark a lesser gospel account. And how could we say that this is lesser? Look at what unfolds here. This is the baptism of Jesus Christ. And while baptism is not in and of itself with water spiritual cleansing... It represents the washing away of sins. So it's so a why would Jesus do this? He's sinless, He's spotless. He is the perfect Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. Why would He be baptized? The people in waiting for the Lord. The messenger has come and is preparing the way. The Lord is now here and is being baptized as a sign that He is sanctified for the work that He is going to do. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has done things before this. We have that account of Jesus as a boy of perhaps 12 years old at the temple teaching even the rabbis. He has done things before this, but this is where his earthly ministry really takes off and he is sanctifying himself for that. We're going to see more of this through Mark. But in these verses 9 to 11, as we look back and understand this more and more and more, the more we recognize that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, we have here someone who is not just a man. We have here God in human flesh. So how can we look at what we see here between verses 9 to 11 and not be blown away? The voice that speaks in verse 11, that is the father speaking, making a declaration of Christ's divinity. Now, while John emphasised the divinity, again, we can't look at any of the gospel accounts and see that Christ is anything other than divine. The father speaks, the son is present and the Holy Spirit in verse 10 descended upon him like a dove. Some people say that God is sometimes the Father and sometimes the Son and sometimes the Holy Spirit depending on what's happening at the time. But at the same time, we see the three persons of our triune Godhead. We see God who is three in one. This is an incredible thing to see here. This is not just The account of a man's ministry who lived 2,000 years ago. This is the account of God who walked on this earth to die for the sins of the world. This is the account of the suffering servant who Isaiah emphasized so much as he looked forward. 700 years of questioning who the messenger, who is this messenger, who is the one coming after the messenger... 700 years of questioning come to an end here. That waiting is over. The answers are given. John is the messenger. Jesus is the Lord. And just as the people needed to prepare themselves for his coming, again, go back to that point of confessing sins and repenting. How prepared are we to meet Jesus, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps to continue living with him well. Matthew Henry is a very helpful commentator. And he writes this. this, is a longer quote than I'd normally give, but he writes this, as we consider our attitude in response to this. John thinks himself unworthy of the meanest office about Christ, that is untying even his sandal strap. The most eminent saints have always been the most humble. They feel their need of Christ's atoning blood and sanctifying spirit more than others. That great promise Christ makes in his gospel to all those who have repented and have had their sins forgiven is they shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. They shall be purified by his graces and refreshed by his comforts. Do we see why this humility before God and utter dependence upon Christ matters so much? So we're about to finish. As we finish, will we be refreshed by his comfort as we continue to see him more and more clearly through Mark? Or will you in pride say, no, I've got this. Will you join me in being more and more amazed and more and more committed to following Christ as we march through this incredible book of Mark? See, this is what Mark wants us to be. He wants us to love God more. He wants us to love Christ more. He wants us to see Christ more. He wants us to be more committed to Christ as we read this. Mark shows us the God-man the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in a way which is compelling and challenges us in our souls. So if you're feeling challenged, that's good, right, and proper. We all should feel that with every single thing we see through this. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we can kick off this section in mark's gospel we thank you for all that we see here we thank you that we see that you are the god who doesn't just provide lofty promises and then give no answer as if the promise is enough to comfort us you give promises that are good for our souls and you see those promises kept you have done this in sending jesus christ our lord and savior the one who saved us from Sin, which is the single most oppressive thing that has ever been faced, that mankind has ever come face to face against. We all struggle with sin. We all have been in need of salvation. May we repent of our sin. May we confess our sins. And we, may we find comfort, refuge, and our eternal home in Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen.